Sustain. This is the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. We're committed, we're committing, trying to figure out how it works. On the panel today, we have me, Richard. Hello. And then we have Eric. Hey there. And we have Justin. Hello, hello. Pia. Hi, folks. And our special guest today, Gunnar. Hello. Gunnar, where are you calling from? I'm in San Francisco on this mostly sunny morning. Awesome. I also just realized, I don't know if you have other names. I just know you as Gunner. I am Alan Gunn. I've been Gunner since the birth of the internet. It was my first email handle in the early 90s. And so that was my morph from being a normal first name to a handle. Okay, that makes more sense now. Awesome. So you're in San Francisco and your name is Alan Gunn. What do you do? Can you tell us about how you got invited on this podcast? Sure. The slightly not short version is that I self-identify as a recovering software engineer and CTO, and I got tired of playing the venture capital game in 2000 when the crash came. And so I have been running a nonprofit in San Francisco for the last 16 years that focuses on getting better technology developed for so-called civil society. So that's nonprofits, activists, human rights advocates, kind of anybody that needs to use technology in a way that could be described as other than for-profit. And we do a lot of work that involves believing that open source software is the foundation on which all technology solutions should be built. So we support open source communities, we advocate for the use of open source, we educate nonprofit leaders and decision makers about procurement and the importance of understanding open licensing in their procurement. And we help, uh, you know, nonprofit staff, we call them the most impacted party, try to learn how to use these technologies in ways that are long-term sustainable. That is the most well-honed pitch I've heard on this show. That is awesome. How many of you are there? We are lean and mean. We are a four-person team. Awesome. What are you working on right now? What's happening today that you're really excited about, or maybe next week or this week? Good questions. So uh, last week we ran our annual conference and it was popping. It was uh, 200 folks, which is crazy bigger than we have done in the past. So we were gratified by the turnout and it was also exciting and that I didn't run it. It was run by our program director, Evelyn, who is a fantastic facilitative leader. Uh, we are looking forward. Next gig on the horizon is the Reproducible Builds Summit in Marrakesh, Morocco. Uh, we've been working with Reproducible Builds Project pretty much from their beginning, and I couldn't be a bigger fan of what they're doing to really try and make open source fully auditable and uh, create that binary trust model. That is super cool. How many conferences do you run a year? Oh, it's a little embarrassing. I'm down to about 40 now. At my <laughs> peak, I was running about 60, 65, but, you know, interventions were staged by significant others. Oh, I my think. God. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm complaining. Just, uh, go, go. I'm, not, I'm speechless. Uh, Sorry. I, I'm complaining about just two days in San Francisco. I'm so tired. I can't. Did you sell your soul? I mean, how do you do this, man? Forty. Um, yeah. No. It's it's a labor of love. I mean, I am trying to ramp it down. I mean, the transition we made at Aspiration that's so exciting is that now our program director is able to run almost all of our events, and so I am happily passing the torch to her. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the annoying thing about running a nonprofit is your bottom line metric is impact, that unquantifiable, annoying I word. And live events are where we really have the most leverage to really socialize some of the things we think are most important around 
I, I would call it rethinking open source. I think a lot of what we believe is that the power dynamics in open source are often not discussed, addressed, or healthy. And so the live events are a place where our event model allows a different set of power dynamics to play out. And they aren't perfect, but we like to think they are more inclusive and more amenable to creating the environment for richer, more sustainable community. And that gets me on airplanes. <laughs> Honestly, Gunnar, it's so great to have him on the show. And we've been excited for this one for a long time. I remember at Sustain, I've never met you before. Well, I've met you, but I've never actually seen you in action before. And at the Sustain Summit in 2018, I was absolutely dumbfounded. Not only your knowledge, but your ability to engage the audience, to get everybody talking. I'd like to hear a little bit about your background. And one, what led you to become so passionate and like for somebody to run, you know, 40, 50, 60 of these a year, there has to be some driving passion underneath. And then also, how are you so good at it? <laughs> oh, you know, questions like that are impossible to respond to in earnest, but I think on a lot of levels, so my background, I mean, where I got my verbosity, which might also be called my BS quotient is that I'm grateful to be the child of two English teachers. And so let's just say that elocution was a dinner table competency that you could not avoid acquiring. And so I think as I grew up, I had a nice happy accident, which was that I was a horrible college student. I got kicked out of my college multiple times because I was bored to tears. But what I did when I was bored was stay up all night at the computer center where I had a key and a job uh, writing computer graphic software. This was back when you had to write your own drivers in the early 80s. And I was really into writing graphic device drivers. And so, and if I can say an embarrassing F word that will brand me forever, I was super into fractals. I was doing all kinds of recursive fractal graphics before that was a mockable behavior. And so, yeah. And so early on, I learned a lot of stuff about algorithms and data structures when nobody was talking about algorithms and data structures. And so when I got kicked out of my college, I had a really, really fun FU thing happen, which was that I was invited to be on the faculty of the sister college to teach computer science as a 20 <laughs> something year old, you know dropout slash like expelled student. And because I'd hated the way I was taught, because I'd hated the way that teachers stood at the front of the room and explained you, I had one teacher and she's legendary. Like, I, you know, she's got her own Wikipedia page and the work she's done is epic and I won't name her. I have nothing but respect for her, but her teaching methodology was to light a clove cigarette and blow clove smoke in the face of students as she asked them questions. So, you know, she would be like, for the reading last night, Alan, what did you think about? And, you know, and the power tripping, the power tripping that I saw in academia of teachers expecting to be treated like priests or deities at the front of the room. And it wasn't always that way, but there was just an asymmetry of power pissed me off because I was, you know, I'd come from a high school with some pretty humble, really excellent teachers who were very participatory. And so when I got a chance to teach, I was like, oh, I'm going to blow this up. And so I... When I was teaching, I made some mistakes. There were times I tried to teach with Grateful Dead music going on. Pro tip, don't try that. But there were other things I did. The thing I'm proudest of from those days and what really, this is honestly answering your question, Eric, what actually has led me on this journey, one of the biggest insights of my life was I was trying to figure out how to teach binary trees to a group of sophomores at the college. And I decided to do it as an interactive role play. And so what I did was I had different people serve as different functions, like the new operator that allocates an object, and other people operate as allocated objects. And so we basically had the code up on the blackboard. We had blackboards back then. And basically, as we ran through the code, students would you know, basically pull you know, a piece of paper out of a hat, but that was an alloc behavior that instantiated a new node in the binary tree. 
And then traversal of the binary tree was a combination of shrugging and squeezing shoulders. And so basically when it was time to do an in-order binary tree traversal, shrugging and shoulder squeezing got it done. And as somebody got their turn to say the piece of paper that they were awkwardly holding in their mouth because their hands were busy being binary tree leads, it was just A, a really fun way. We were dying of laughter trying to do it as a group. But then what was stunning to me was every single student coded the binary tree correctly the first time. And I remembered when I did my first binary tree, I did not code it correctly even the fifth time. And so the, the aha was that these folks having lived it, these folks having acted it out, had a much more visceral and immersive understanding of the data structure. And I've spent the last 35 years trying to build on that insight of when you do it, when you live it, when you are it, you are fundamentally more able to not only be effective moving forward, but teach and give that same insight and energy forward. And so much of what's wrong with our world, if I can get on one of my standard soapboxes, is that most of the spaces in which we convene can be described as having a front of room. And whether you are talking about pop culture or education or religion, there is a dominant paradigm, which is effectively sit down, shut up, face the front of the room and do whatever the person with the mic uh, tells you to do, whether that is pray or take notes or put your hands in the air like you just don't care. And at least in the third case at a concert, you are allowed to stand up while you do it. But the point is that we really believe that there should be no fronts of room and that in trying to build capacity both in social justice movements and in open source communities, we need to be thinking about how does participatory and how does getting everyone actively involved fundamentally change both the quality of the overall dynamic, but also the sustainability, because more people feel like owners, more people feel like leaders, and more people feel empowered to contribute because they started doing that early, not late. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to have you on our show. That's it for this session. Um, <laughs> Hold on, I got more questions. <laughs> more questions. Um, so if somebody was to attend one of your conferences, what, what would they find versus maybe one of those front of room conferences that they would typically see? Can you like paint a picture of how that works? Sure. Our goal in convening someone who's not been to one of our events is, in fact, cognitive dissonance. And we want them to be a little bit confused by what they're seeing. We try to get people to realize early that when they get there, it's not about them and it's not about their ego. And we have very simple ways of conveying that. We are a PowerPoint-free environment. We are a panels-free environment. The whole idea is that there's not a notion of an asymmetry. We literally, almost to a point of pretense, refuse to use the word expert. And so instead what we do is treat our events, and this is our own pretense, as knowledge markets. In other words, we know there's some people that have more knowledge about certain things, and we know there's other people that need that knowledge. Our role is to broker good knowledge transactions that are equitable to both parties. And if you want an example of an inequitable knowledge transaction, ever been in a standard PowerPoint presentation with 55 slides where the very, very caffeinated speaker blasts through the 55 slides and maybe something on slide 28 was interesting, but you've seen the rest or it doesn't apply to you? That's a, that's a market failure. That's a supply side that has no accountability to the demand side of a knowledge market because they're just deciding in advance what it is that they're going to ship. And with our models, we set it up both before and at events that participants get to calibrate what is going to be on offer and get to calibrate the ways in which it will be delivered. And by doing that, we fundamentally shift the power dynamics. The other thing we do that I will own is wholly and totally Californian. We make everyone sit facing one another. We sit in squares or circles or other geometric patterns because one of my other deep insights in this life, when you are facing one another in a circle or a square, everyone's emotion is traveling in real time. I see everyone's faces or most everyone's faces except the folks to my left and my right. So when a smile happens, it happens real time, instantly and synchronously across the group. 
If you're ever in the back of a large room, notice how laughter travels backwards. In other words, if something funny happens at the front of the room, there's a little latency for the energy to reach the back of the room, unless it is such a big moment that it is instantaneous and it's landing across the whole theater. And so what we try to do by making it so no one's looking at the back of anyone's head is make it so that all human energy is flowing in real time. And I know it sounds Californian, but I say it in earnest. We believe that our events are different in that they focus on maximizing the interpersonal communications without fetishizing interpersonal communications. In other words, we don't want to do group hugs. We refuse to do trust falls, none of that woo-woo stuff. But what we are trying to do is create an environment where there is the right level of human openness to advance technical and intellectual openness. Can you give us a couple of examples of really tough, because it seems like, and I know this because I've been to uh, your events, but um, it's, it's a great model to talk really difficult conversations um, mm -hmm. and hard topics, um, especially because you are kind of breaking those power dynamics that make those conversations very hard to happen in the first place. But at the same time, you are opening up a big, you know, you're potentially opening up to a lot of chaos and a lot of things being said. So can you talk a little bit about, like, what do you think were the hardest conversations that maybe you had in these events? You know, a couple of examples of those conversations and what do you think you push forward with these events? What frameworks you think were rethought, um, rethought in events like this? Sure. That's a big, broad question. Let me see if mm -hmm. I can focus. Yeah, I mean, let me, I'll start by saying what I think are patterns of hardest conversations. And I think the ones that I think are the hardest in free and open source communities, I think they're under-addressed and need to be better addressed, are conversations about race and class and privilege. I think you have situations where open source projects want to be quote-unquote diverse, they want to invite uh, a broader set of you know, folks to meetings, but I think a lot of projects are not prepared emotionally or conceptually for fully owning that goal. And by that, I mean, when you bring in folks that have operated in less privileged or more marginalized contexts, they tend to bring that stuff up. And that tends to lead to disconnects of potentially really significant varieties. Uh, people who can't believe that there is such a thing as systemic racism or people who believe that if you just work hard, it all works out for everybody. Mm -hmm. Talking to people that have seen active discrimination or have seen gender discrimination or have seen incredible oppression, political oppression in their countries. And so... The, that to me is one category of the hardest conversations. I call them clumsily the social justice conversations, the conversations where we work toward equity and inclusion, diversity, and deeper understanding of what it means to really be honoring the range of stakeholders in a live meeting or in a broader community. And the other one that I think is germane to the free and open source world, the other category of hard uh, conversations that comes up a lot is burnout. You know, you deal with a lot of people that put absurd pressure on themselves. You put, deal with a lot of people who get exploited because of their talent. If you want to talk about one interesting demographic of burnout in the open source world, the people that are writing the tools used by the human rights researchers. And so we've done a lot of work with the wonderful Tor project. They make the Tor browser, which is a phenomenal piece of privacy and anonymity technology. But the stakes are high when you are writing the Tor browser because it is used by people who, if outed as visiting the wrong website or searching the wrong search terms, go to jail or get dead. And so a bug in Tor or a bug in the signal tool or a bug in some of these other tools that are being used by at-risk people in high-risk environments, the pressure on the developers can't be overstated. And there's not always an outlet for them to talk about that. There's not always an outlet for them to get stress relief or downtime or whatever else. And to be clear, I think Tor and Signal are both do a brilliant job of taking care of their people. But I think it's been a learning curve, especially for Tor, because of the fact that you're dealing in a situation where it's charting un uncharted territory. You're learning in a postmodern realm where you're trying to create something that's never existed, a Tor browser, 
for political situations that are coming into existence in real time. So, and I think those, those are probably, the other category of hard conversations is internal power dynamics. If you're running a meeting that is one org or one project, having power dynamic conversations when senior and non-senior people are there requires a lot of and how do you bridge that? Like, what are you, some of you, the most successful strategies that you have or that you've learned over the years to bridge those? Um, most of the time it starts, we have two t- pre-event processes um, that we describe as pre-negotiation and hallucination creation. And the idea is that you engage all of the stakeholders you can. We literally ask every participant at every event we are involved in what they want to get out of the meeting. And we really look at what they say because so much, so many surprises are waiting in that data and so many avoidable non-good things are handed to you on a silver platter when you ask people in advance what they want to talk about or get out of a convening. And so as we get that data, we start negotiating and we negotiate with the people that have the unrealistic expectations to calibrate their expectations into the realistic part of the spectrum. But we often will negotiate with the people who hold power to visualize giving up their power in the live meeting. And that requires coaching. People who hold power, CEOs, executive directors, project leads, VPs, I can list all of the generic terms, but you know who I'm talking about. They need to be invited to be self-aware about the fact that acting like they know everything and acting like they're in control and acting like they need to exert all their power is the right instinct. And so a lot of times what we do is invoke the collective and invoke the stated outcomes as leverage to get them to open up and give up some of their power. As in, hey, if you don't let other people talk, we will not achieve our event goals. If you're not honoring other perspectives, you will have the group disengage and this will not be a useful meeting because those are true statements. It's not like we're gaming them. We're telling them the truth. And by pre-negotiating and in the process of pre-negotiating, creating this thing that I call the shared pre-event hallucination, you get into the meeting in a higher state of readiness. And that guarantees nothing. It can still be a hot mess. It can still be a meltdown. It can still be a fight. But you do your best to focus down to the essential set of topics that are productively discussed in real time in person and set a frame for those discussions that is equitable and inclusive as opposed to defensive or ad hoc or not well thought out. Yeah, I, I just got to add something to the previous discussion. And by the way, Pia, that was an amazing question and got an amazing answer as always. But I want to go back to Sustain Summit. And it started as a tweet replying to Pia. And a lot of people were interested. And I was like, oh, cool, unconference. And I will be honest, on a week after it, well, I was panicking. I was like, what are we going to do? Like what people are going to come to GitHub headquarters and like, what are we going to do? And it was just such a stroke of luck that Nadia told Pia about you. And I'm like, Oh, thank God. Cause I had this vision of a conversation where there would be no PowerPoints, which is what you're against. And I'm so, I was so glad to hear that. And yeah, I mean, for those who don't, has never been to an event with Gunnar, like you, you do a uh, MozFest once a year. Yeah. That is so, correct. Yeah. So I, I just, we totally lucked out and, um, I just wanted to say all that because it's just like you're a lifesaver. And um, yeah, if you have an event, definitely <laughs> hire a gutter because they'll save you from panicking. Well, I'm blushing with your kindness. And if you have an event, you should call Aspiration because we'll probably send Evelyn. But yes, uh, we are. Exactly. 
You know, a big part of what we believe and a big part of what we manifest in our events is this idea that anyone who doesn't see their ultimate metric of success as self-obsolescence is not part of the solution. And that it's, you know, in other words, and this is, you know, I say this as an engineer uh, who, if you've ever done software engineering, you know that there are a clumsy binary is there's two types of engineers, people who write their code to be maintained and improved by others and people who write their code to never give up control. I once worked with an engineer who literally generated random tokens for variable names. And I asked him, why do you do this? And he said, job security. And so I believe that in the same way that some engineers don't comment their code and don't make their code easy to hand off, I think in leadership roles and other power roles in open communities, I judge people by their willingness to make themselves obsolete. I judge people by their willingness to teach forward what they do. And so much of our event model is trying to make ourselves obsolete. You know, one of our proudest metrics is when we started event series that then would take over and run themselves. We used to run the tour developer meetings and now Allison and the community team at tour run them and we don't even need to go. And believe me, we miss them and we'd love to go. But um, it's really exciting to us to get into the stance where you don't need to call us, call that an anti-advertisement. But so much of what we're trying to do is make sure that the methodologies we use are treated as the same kind of open data as anything else in the open ethos. Do you have any um, material you would suggest on that model? I'm asking because it seems to be directly it ends with another brand of philosophy coming out of Silicon Valley. I'm thinking particularly of Seth Godin's linchpin, where it says you should make yourself indispensable, right? Right. And so there's like these two, for a lot of coders, they end up going down the Tim Ferriss route of like, I can hack everything and understand what, what everything is. Right. And that seems to be the opposite of make yourself obsolete. And so I'm curious, do you have any reading you suggest to other readers? Because, well, for me, I- I'm interested. Well, there's certainly stuff we've written. Um, there's three things I can point you to, and I'll get you the links later, or Eric will Google them in this, at the speed of light. <laughs> I've been appreciating all of your documentation as we talk. So we, on our website, have our manifesto. And I think that is useful if you want to understand how we look at the world. It is a quote-unquote love-fueled rant about all that we think is broken about technology in support of social change. We have a wiki, and when I say wiki, I mean wiki, ugly, but ugly, but full of decent content at facilitation.aspirationtech.org. And linked on the front page of that wiki is our white paper on creating participatory events, which was written 12 years ago, but aside from a couple of cultural references that no one gets anymore, has aged quite well. And so I think if you want to see our side of the answer to your question, that's where you would go. I think with regard to things like the make yourself indispensable mindset, I think you step back and you take a question of what are you optimizing for? What goal set are you targeting? Because when I hear somebody say make yourself indispensable, I hear someone who is trying to maximize income because if you are making yourself indispensable, you get paid more. Uh, Trying to maximize career path, you get to move faster up. Uh, If you're into the whole VC exploitation paradigm, that whole S&M game, uh, you can also then, if you're indispensable, have a higher chance of getting exploited by VCs who write contracts that are guaranteed to screw you no matter how smart you think you are. Uh, and so there's a lot of different ways in which making yourself indispensable is a self-maximization tactic. And we often talk about the spectrum. You know, there, there was a famous paper written in the nonprofit world back in the 2000s, probably about 12, 13 years ago, by a guy named Rob Stewart. May he rest in peace. We miss Rob. But Rob wrote a paper about egocentric organizing versus net-centric organizing. And he said there are campaigns that are based around the ego of the lead campaigner or the ego of the lead organization. And it's about their identity, their brand, their charisma, et cetera. And he said, as the internet becomes a thing, 
we need to shift from egocentric to network centric. And so there's a guy out of DC named Marty Kearns who runs an organization called Network Centric Campaigns. And I think Marty Kearns is one of the smartest people on earth when it comes to what it means to make yourself obsolete. Marty Kearns has taught me more things than I can give him credit for. And so to your question, I don't criticize people that talk about making yourself indispensable. I was that way once. And I respect anyone's, you know, it's a free world. In that regard, I absolutely respect self-determination. And if you want to make yourself indispensable, you go. But I think you get to a point in life when you're non-young, like I am, where you ask yourself, what are you really trying to leave behind when you go? And there's a spectrum of people. Some people want to leave behind the biggest garage of expensive cars, and that's going to prove they won. You know, there are literally people in the Valley who believe that they who die with the most toys wins. And I really want to leave behind thought bombs that keep exploding. I want, to leave, I want to leave behind ideas that keep percolating and propagating forward in subverting power. And the only way that you can subvert power, the only way that you can take power away from the toxic power holders is to give it away to other people who themselves find their own ways to invert power, challenge power, and otherwise change the game. And so I see my role, my self-obsolescence goal is correlated with my belief that that's how I maximize my impact collectively as opposed to individually. And that's how we model events. You know, when one of the fascinating things about events, you know, we talk about all of the politically incorrect aspects of our methodology. One of the main things we do to be successful in running aspiration events, real-time stereotyping. And so once I get in a room, and part of why we do pre-event engagement is, oh, thank you, pre-event engagement, for smoking out the problem children. Pre-event engagement, you know, the classical, we have people that announce in the pre-event engagement I am the smartest expert on these 14 topics. I have slide decks ready to go, and I'm happy to keynote your event, and I can also anchor every panel. I won't be tired. Just let me know where to show up. And then we have to email them back and be like, oh, dude, I think you're not. You're so not getting it. You have time to let us bring you in off that ledge. And so we, instead, of those, those are what we tell, call the control takers. We have these California phrases that we try to change into non-nauseating phrases when we go out of state. But in California, the two terms are control takers and love bringers. And a control taker is someone who's operating out of ego and at an event for self-promotion or to make their company more visible or to get their product or their project more, you know, sort of at the center of things. Whereas love bringers, which we also call, we're outside of California, we tend to call them collectivists or group allies. Those are the people who think about collective outcomes. Those are the people who are wanting the whole group to have a good experience or wanting the less included or less uh, empowered people to have a voice. And our whole game in real-time stereotyping is push power to the love bringers, push power to the people that are themselves trying to push power to the people. And our whole model of organizing events is to give away our power as conveners, but to give it away selectively to the people that we know won't hoard it or abuse it, and instead give it to the people that understand what it means to give real-time equity in a conversation, real-time equity in a dialogue to all of the voices, not just the ones that have the most Twitter followers. And he practices what he preaches. The first sustained we had, there were a few people with laptops open. And Gunnar was like, okay, everyone needs to close their laptop. And they wouldn't do it. And then I'm probably missing a few details. But basically, two people left that day because they weren't listening. So everything he just said, I can 100% back up with real experience. Although, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, Justin. I would actually, if those two people are listening, I think I owe them an apology because I think we handled that one that day not the best we could have. It's really, I think so much of what we do is narrative-centered. And I remember, I mean, if, if we want to do like really vivid flashbacks, remember us sitting in that tourist restaurant somewhere off of Union Square the night before trying to figure out the plan. 
And so I don't think we did a good enough job of telling people in advance of the first open sustained event what to expect. And so I think that's what we've gotten better at. I think we've gotten better at telling people what to expect, both about sustained events, our events in general. But I felt bad because those people were surprised by that news at that event. And that was our fault, not their fault. Good point. Yeah, we, we totally dropped the ball on that. But still, the event was pretty much distraction free, which is what that is true we going for. Yeah. And, you know, and the buzz, I, you know, I, I was very grateful that GitHub hosted us because it was such a statement of endorsement of the concept to be in that room with those people. And, you know, and, you know, I think about the other people that were there that really sort of gave it that sense of eminence, you know, Kat Allman, anytime Kat Allman's in the room, oh, hell yeah, things are real. And oops, I said hell, sorry. But, uh, but in all seriousness, <laughs> that was the thing that made that event really pop and what kept people fully present. You can make put, p- people put devices at ease, but if there's not something to hold their attention and really create a sense of the value of being fully present, it lasts about 10 minutes. And what we had at that event, people like Nadia, people like Josh from Sloan and Michael from Ford, you had really passionate people on exploration journeys who had knowledge to share or questions to ask. And so it was just a, that was a great example of where the knowledge market paradigm really played out effectively because there were people searching for an answer. You know, there were people really trying to figure out, hey, how do I make my thing work better? And there were people like Nadia that had been thinking about that for years that could sit down and either share what they knew or ask provocative questions to reframe people's thinking. And to me, that's really, really the best of what our events can be is when we do that sort of ad hoc but high value matchmaking. Yeah, I love it. And by the way, we want to give a shout out to Brandon Keepers for making that whole thing happen. I don't know where he's at, but thank you, Brandon. I love listening to you speak. I could literally do this all day. It's it's one of my favorite things. So thank you so much for your eloquent and just amazing answers. One of the things that I keep bouncing back to you in my mind is why aren't you in politics? Why aren't you like doing social justice stuff? Same thing. (laughs) Yeah. How did you end up in tech? Like why aspiration tech? Why not aspiration nonprofit for all social justice? I know you said you love fractals. That's cool. I mean, I love Calvin Hobbes. I don't go around drawing web comics anymore. So how did you end up in this field? Yeah, politicians need some, you know, shoulders quizzing and shrugging and, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. They I all think. need back <laughs> Yeah, well, so yeah, it's, it's a question I've not been asked much. Um, so I will give you a few thoughts. So I think thought number one is, and again, you know, I, you know, on the personal side, I would say my journey through Silicon Valley couldn't have been any more fun if I tried. And I led a really fascinating dual life in that, I was, I started out as a you know, senior engineer in the late 80s and moved my way up to CTO by the late 90s of a dot-com that had a really good idea that was way ahead of its time. We were trying to do crowdsourced learning through interactive video labeling before interactive video labeling failed to crash your browser every two minutes. And so we basically just died because we couldn't ship a product that you know, didn't crash Internet Explorer 1.0 or Netscape 2.0. So anyway, I, I, I had a really good run. And my, my dual life was that I was a roadie in a rock and roll band. How was I a roadie in a rock and roll band? What strings did I have to pull to become a roadie in a rock and roll band? Oh, let me tell you, buddy. I had a Dodge minivan. And so when my housemates, (laughs) who were in a rock and roll band, found out I had a Dodge minivan, I immediately got the roadie badge. It's like, dude, got a show at the Paradise on Friday. Is there any chance you can get the monitors and the guitars? They were in the Paradise with us. And I was like, well, hell yeah. And so it it was in living that dual life that I got a lot of chance to reflect on what I thought life was about in that I felt virtually everything I did in Silicon Valley ended up being a waste of time. 
Uh, it was before the days of user-centered design, and I spent 15 years designing products nobody wanted, or I should say implementing products nobody wanted. Other people decided what they were uh, until pretty late in the game. And so a, a lot of my journey was a rock and roll fun trip. We had a blast in Silicon Valley. I was chief social officer in addition to being CTO, so I would always make sure we had fun nights out and things like that. And it was a, it was a groove. But when I look back, the impact of what I did in the 90s is negligible. And uh, I just wrote a lot of code that never shipped and worked for a lot of startups that went out of business, learned a ton, got no regrets. But one of my mentors way, way back in the day in the early 80s, as I walked by, and I'm going to say a cuss word, but it's said for historical accuracy reasons. But I walked by this guy, Tim Baker, who was this fascinating friend. And he said, and I was Alan at the time. He said, Alan, have you considered in your life the give a shit factor? And I said, Tim, no, I have not. Explain this factor to me. And he says, Alan, when you are dead, will anyone give a shit? And I'm like, gee, Tim, I have not thought about that question. I was a 24-year-old obnoxious brat at the time, and worrying about dying was not yet on my short list of to-do items. But I think as I went through the 90s, I had this nagging in the back of my head thing that I was not upping my give-a-shit coefficient. And then as I came out of the 90s and was thinking about where to make a difference, I went to work for a radical anarchist group that trained people in how to protest. I went to work for a group called Ruckus Society uh, that was trying to figure out how to integrate technology into protests. And they had been the ones that organized or co-organized the Seattle protests, the WTO protests that will be 30 years old as of November 30th of this month, which makes me feel old. But it was in going to work for them in 2000, 2001, that I realized I'd never thought about power and class and a lot of other political issues. And so when you ask, why am I not a politician? I think all political systems are inherently corrupt. I salute the work that people are doing to get money out of politics. I salute the work that nonprofits like MapLight are doing to shine a light on money and access in politics. But I don't believe that that is good use of the time of a person of my age. And I don't believe myself as an old white guy is the right voice to be there. I look at some of the young leaders in Congress in the U.S. right now, AOC and some of the other people that are in her cohort. I think those are the people that should be the politicians of the future. And I sat in the early 2000s thinking, where do I cast my lot? And I came back to, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a teacher. I am somebody who understands what it means to transfer knowledge. I have extremely strong opinions about how knowledge is transferred and how capacity is gained. And I just pretty intuitively, it wasn't like I, I walked on the beach and like had the moment where the moon hits the sort of horizon and I get the clarity kind of thing. That didn't happen. But I just kind of osmosed into clarity on the fact that the things I had developed, the facilitative processes, the inversions of power, that is the way in which I can bring about change. Don't get me wrong. I advise and shadow advise on a lot of projects that involve politicians. We have a very large practice area in the European digital rights environment. And while we never talk to European parliamentarians, we work with 40 some odd organizations in Europe that themselves, you know, they helped to bring about the GDPR. They are helping to bring about legislation on AI and other critical digital rights issues. And we're just there advising. We're just there as a roadie in that environment. And in all seriousness, that's where my roadie experience plays, because it's so fun to figure out how to help those people figure out how to rock the halls of power. And so, so much of what I try to do is combine the meaninglessness of my Silicon Valley days, the fact that I made a lot of money and had a lot of fun and got absolutely nothing done that changed the world with my insights around what it's like to be a roadie in a rock and roll band and how in a, in a given moment, real change can happen if a band, you know, Keith Richards has a, a quote that I just love. He was once asked, are the Rolling Stones the best rock and roll band in the world? And he just condescendingly sniffed at the interviewer and he said, mate, on any given night, any band can be the best rock and roll band in the world. And I just had those moments when my band, Porcelain, you know, Steve was the lead singer and it was just a great group, Steve and Nick and Chris and 
uh, Rich. It was just an amazing band. And then Fane, we got a guy with the name Fane. So then we were really a rock and roll band. But, you know, when they were on stage, there was a couple of moments where they could have been the Rolling Stones. There was a couple of moments where the entire audience was one undulating, pulsing punk rock mosh pit. And that really transformed me, seeing the power of moments, seeing the power of what it means to build to a crescendo where a group has an identity and you don't let them down hard. You sort of, you make sure that when the lights come up, it's not that awkward. Everybody goes to smoke a cigarette and act like that didn't just happen. But how is it that you go from you know, being a unified, you know, human collective organism in a mosh pit to actually being a bunch of people that have a really good conversation after the show? That's the kind of stuff, that essence, that energy, that essentialness. I find that's best expressed in the work I do now. I think if I was sitting in Congress or trying to be the mayor of San Francisco, I would have already just jumped out of the window at City Hall because it's just like there's so much corruption. There's so much cynicism. I've worked on mayoral campaigns in San Francisco. And when I saw what gets people elected, it just broke my heart. Uh, and so long story short, I don't think that would be good use of my time. I salute the leaders that do that work. I super salute people like Zach Exley and the folks that founded Change Congress. I salute the folks that got AOC uh, to actually run. If you have not seen the documentary on AOC running for Congress, oh yeah, take a look at that. Uh, it is just such an inspiring story of a leader emerging in real time. Uh, she was a bartender who decided to run for Congress and now look at her. So long story short, I'm giving you a longer answer than you probably bargained for, but I couldn't feel more leveraged if I tried. I couldn't feel more grateful. And just think about this podcast. I mean, think about who's on this call right now. Think about what you all are doing and what you all are connected to. I am always feeling like I am in the company of people that I want to be when I grow up. And I'm always in the company of people that I want to help rock. And I couldn't ask for anything more. I was going to say, even before you answered this, you're way too punk rock to be an elected official, you know? It's just like, it's, it's totally like against your, like your foundation, I guess is the right <laughs> word. But yeah, no, I was just like, when the, when the politics thing came up, sure, you could do it, but you kissing babies and shaking hands, I just don't see that. Uh, I, for the record, I didn't think you should run for Congress or anything. I was thinking more <laughs> along the lines of like organizing with the Democratic Socialists of America or something like yeah. that. But I think you answered it really well by saying that, you know, this is just your niche and you also get to speak to power in this role, which is awesome. And that's really cool. And a lot of people, I think, separate tech from politics in some way mm -hmm. because tech is its own thing and it's its own values and mm -hmm. its own ideas. And politics is like, well, that's flyering and leafleting and I don't want to do that. Whereas yeah. you've reframed it really well into, well, they're all power dynamics. Everything's about power dynamics. Oh, yeah. And what I you're trying to do funny. is maximize yours. A lot of times in tech where people say like, oh, don't bring politics into the office. And I'm like, ah, I don't think you know how politics works or what it yeah. means, right? It's like power dynamics are everywhere. And I think that we refuse, we're in denial of how power works and that it's kind of, I think that a part of our inability to find solutions is because we are not able to understand the dynamics of power or we just don't want to understand the dynamics of power. So yeah, bring politics into the office, folks. They're there already. Here, here. <laughs> Thank you so much, Gunnar. Um, around time for us to wrap up. Is there anything else that you feel like you didn't get the chance to talk about? Well, I mean, I think I would tie it off this way. I mean, I just want to sort of reiterate my gratitude to be working with you all and working on the same project. I had no idea what we were going to talk about today. And I've been, it, you know, caused me just because of the name of the podcast, it caused me to think a lot about what do I have to say today, this Friday morning in November about sustainability? And I think, you know, my, my closing riff would be to say that I think I invite everybody listening who gives a damn about the sustainability of free and open source software to 
look at it through a lens that I would lovingly call technology last. So often when we talk about open source software or open intellectual property, open knowledge, we put the fetishization around the tech or around the content. You know, Wikipedia gets fetishized for its content. But I really encourage people as you do your own journeys to think about sustainability and however you define it where you are, to think of it as a multifaceted and incredibly complicated basket of objectives. And to really think that the things that get the least attention are the most important. And so I'll start from some of the things I mentioned earlier. If you're listening to this and you're feeling burned out in your free and open source job, you know, there are places you can go. Feel free to come on over to some of the online locations that the Sustain OSS website can point you to, like our discourse channels. Come talk to us and we don't have answers, but we can probably connect you to people that are willing or are able to talk to you about dealing with burnout, dealing with the fact that when you're writing code for a living, your shoulders hurt, your back hurt, your wrist hurts, your brain hurts, personal life probably hurts, especially if you have the privilege of having one. I went years without a personal life and I was relatively okay with that. And so I really encourage people to think about the non-technical aspects around personal sustainability. I encourage people to think about the community aspects because one of the things we do at Aspiration a lot that I find striking in that I'm always sad when it happens, we counsel so many open source projects who failed to model for success. And what I mean by failed to model for success was they had a good idea, they threw it up on GitHub, they you know, announced to some other mailing list they were starting this project, and then poof, it was a good thing, as in it took off. People started using it, pull requests started coming in, and they hadn't thought about governance, and they hadn't thought about goals, and they hadn't thought about community direction and community identity. And so I encourage everyone here, if you are starting an open source project, growing a free or open source project, Think about sustainability from a governance, inclusion, and decision-making standpoint at the start, not as a bolt-on. And finally, the business side of it, and that's the one I think everybody on this podcast is happy to talk about any time. I would just put out an open invitation that I think so much of what we're trying to do in the sustained community, talking about making money, talking about paying the bills, talking about how it is that you both answer your passion, but also do it in a way that allows you to keep on keeping on. We invite you to come join us in these conversations because it's an unsolved problem, but it's not a topic of shame. It is a topic of perpetual innovation, even if it is as a topic of perpetual challenge. And we need more big brains helping us think through ways in which we can collectively solve this problem. We need more big brains helping us think about what it is to include everyone in financial and sort of community sustainability, because the most innovative business models to me are the ones where a lot of people independently are able to sustain themselves within a larger open source ecosystem, be that an open source content management system or any of the other platforms whereby their architectural extensibility, they bake in financial sustainability, whether you're writing a plugin or selling a bunch of themes or just doing customization of core code bases. And so that's a conversation that we want more people in, especially if you self-identify as having a different analysis or having a different perspective on what it means to be a coder or be a designer or be an entrepreneur. I just want to put a plug to say, I couldn't think more highly of the folks that I'm working on sustain with. Love y'all. And I just really hope we can grow this circle and keep bringing more folks into this dialogue. Here, here. All of us just did jazz hands because which you can't see on the podcast, but we're all just like, yes, it's amazing. And thank you for bringing it back to the actual name of the podcast. I so often forget that we are about sustaining things. Thank you so much, Gunnar. Now hey, it's thank time y'all. To, yeah, it's not over Wait. yet. Wait, we have one more thing. We have Spotlight, where we try to shine light on projects that need more sustenance, need more attention, that we think are awesome and are doing great things in the world. Eric, would you like to go first? Yeah, my Spotlight choice today 
is a Ruby gem. So our project is built on Ruby. CodeFund is built on Ruby. And one of the gems that we use is bulk insert. And the gem is extremely useful. It's very widely adopted, but I wanted to point it out because the person who created it and the maintainer of it is Jameis Buck. Now, Jameis is a phenomenal developer. He's also uh, one who's gone through burnout. And in fact, I went to a conference a few years back and he gave a talk on burnout. He worked at Basecamp for a while, or I guess he still works at Basecamp, but he took almost a year off because he was absolutely burned out. So not only am I wanting to share his library and give him some some public love, but also I'd like to share uh, his talk. So I'm going to link his talk in the show notes as well. So that's my uh, spotlight choice. Thank you so much, Eric. Justin? Yes. Uh, mine today is Carbon. It is a simple PHP API extension for date time. Yeah, I, I, I like that project. Awesome. Thank you so much. Do, do you know who, who's, the, uh, who's the maintainer on that? The GitHub for that is at Brian Nesbit, which sounds a lot like the other Nesbit, but I think it's spelled differently. So if you go to Carbon. Nes- Nesbot. Nesbot, N-E-S-B-O-T dot com. You can find the project and you can go to the GitHub and you will see the maintainers there. Give them some love. Pia, what do you got? Um, so my spotlight for today is a project called CodeBuddies, CodeBuddies.org. And it's a global community of people that are helping each other to become better at developing software through conversations and kind of peer-to-peer organized groups. So they organize virtual hangouts where you can do peer-to-peer just working there with someone, you know, that you're working with someone on a hangout. They have teaching hangouts where if you really want to learn something, the best way of learning that is teaching that to someone else. So they have like these opportunities where you can you know, teach what you're learning to make sure that that is happening. Anyway, so Code Buddies is a really, really cool project. Awesome. Thank you so much. Mine, I just changed it to hackmd.io. HackMD is a super useful website for making really easy notes, basically pads, where you can write stuff collaboratively with other people. I bring this up because Etherpad, I noticed the other day, is actually shutting down after around 10, 20 years, however long it was, of being just the boss at this. HackMD does it really well for Markdown, and we've actually switched to using HackMD in some of my projects. And this week... I noticed that when you refresh sometimes their user state, there's a little button that comes up saying, refresh, it needs to refresh. Also, buy us coffee, maybe. And so it looks like they may be interested in getting some coffee. So send them love, hackmd.io. I tried to find out who the maintainers were, and it looks like it's a group of people. But they don't, doesn't seem to be open source. But I would like to know more. Anyway, hackmd.io is awesome. Collaborative note-taking is the best. And finally, we have Gunner. Gunner, what do you got for us? Hey, I'd like to shout out, we've been working with uh, Allied Media Project. They're a phenomenal nonprofit in Detroit and can't say enough nice things about them. There's only one event on this earth that we are positive that's better than our annual conference, and it's the Allied Media Conference. If you go to one conference in your lifetime, go to the AMC. Uh, we've been helping them think through their web strategy for re- overhauling their website, and they taught us about Consentful Tech. So there's a website, consentfultech.io that talks about hard questions you should have as you're designing a website around how you collect data from your website visitors. And so I just can't say enough nice things about it. They've got a cute acronym, which is FRIES. Consent around user data should be freely given, reversible, informed, specific, and enthusiastic. I did that out of order, but it comes out to be FRIES if you do it in the right order. But yeah, it's just a brilliant 
brilliant framing of how you think about user data responsibilities on the part of website hosts and website designers. So consentfultech.io rock, you know, the Allied Media Project rocks, and a specific shout out to Una Lee and Dan Tolliver, who are the folks that wrote the Consentful Tech zine that you can download and learn from. Thank you so much. All right, that's it for us today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Gunnar, for being on the podcast. Thank you, panelists, for sitting back in awe as Gunnar talked. And um, hope to see you next time. Thank y'all. Bye, everyone. Ciao.